I am now very happy to introduce our next speaker, Professor Gavin Kerr. Um, professor Kerr is a, a professor of philosophy at the Pontifical University of St. Patrick's College in Maynooth, at Maynooth, Ireland. Uh, he is a very important contemporary voice in Thomistic metaphysics. He's producing a uh, high number of interesting articles regularly published in places like the Thomist, the American Catholic Philosophical Quarterly, the International Philosophical Quarterly, where he's writing a great deal on difficult and nuanced topics with regards to knowledge of God, philosophical argument for the arguments for the existence of God, and Thomistic metaphysics. He has two uh, significant monographs, if you want to read some of his books, Aquinas's Way to God, The Proof in the De Ente and Essentia from Oxford University Press in 2015, and Just Hot Off the Press, Aquinas and the Metaphysics of Creation from Oxford in 2019, and I have some kind of intimation he might still be industrious and be coming up with yet more. We are very honored to have him with us this afternoon, and the title of his presentation is God's Existence and Nature in Summa Contra Gentiles 1, The Case for Classical Theism. So we turn now to Professor Kerr. Okay, thanks very much for that introduction. And it's great to see everybody here. It's great to be amongst you as well. Whilst what Father Thomas states is correct, I teach at St. Patrick's College, Maynooth. I'm not in Maynooth at the minute. I'm in the not-so-sunny Belfast where we had our uh, bit of sprinkling of snow. So you're getting this from the slightly snowy-covered Belfast. It should be melted by this evening anyway. Okay, so what I want to talk to you today about is um, Aquinas on God's existence, God's nature, Aquinas' whole classical theistic outlook. And I want to relate that to the Summa Contra Gentiles, book one. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about what I, can, what I take to be what I call Aquinas' way to God. Um, I argue that there is a way to God in the thinking of St. Thomas Aquinas, um, which is present throughout his works. Um, and I want to take you through that way to God and just explain what it is. And then I want to point out something which is a wee bit odd about the Summa Contra Gentiles, because despite the fact that this is Aquinas' way to God, and that it's present throughout a number of his works, it is peculiarly absent from the Summa Contra Gentiles book one, the very place where you would think this, you know, really sort of uh, efficient, neat, um, profound proof of God would find its place. It's absent from Contra Gentiles book one. And I want to reflect on that. And some of my reflections on that actually came up in the first paper we had from Father Joseph about the, the, the immediate context of Contra Gentiles 1. And that gives us a hint for why this proof doesn't appear there. And it also gives us a lesson as to how we should approach uh, God's existence in nature today within a contemporary philosophical context. So when we think about God's existence and the demonstrations of God's existence, um, notably in Contra Gentiles 1, but also in the Summa Theologiae Prima Pars, Aquinas often precedes those demonstrations by considering the logic of argumentation. In any demonstrative syllogism, um, there's what's called the middle term, and the middle term unites both the major and minor terms in the conclusion. So as we all know from our logic, those of us who have done it, um, the middle term doesn't appear in the conclusion, it appears in the two premises, and then the major minor term, terms which appear in the premises, they're united in the conclusion. So you take the traditional Socrates syllogism that um, everyone's typically familiar with. All men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is mortal. The middle term serves to unite mortality with Socrates. But the important thing about the middle term here is that it tells us something about the essence of the subject of demonstration. Without that, we can't form a conclusion. So when you take the Socrates syllogism, all men are mortal, Socrates is man, therefore, and so on and so on, um, it tells us that Socrates is a man. And in being subsumed under the things that are men, which we know are mortal, we can thereby conclude that Socrates is mortal. Fair enough, that's the logic of demonstration. But now we come to a problem. If that's how we're going to make demonstrations, and that's how we're going to draw conclusions from true premises, what about God? If we want to make a demonstration of God's existence, we're going to need some appropriate middle term. But if the middle term has to express something about the essence of the subject of demonstration, we, need to, we would, in that case, need to know the essence of God. But we can't know the essence of God. We don't even know yet that God exists, given that we're trying to give a demonstration. So, uh, so we can't know the essence of God. 
So how are we going to form um, a demonstration about God? Well, Aquinas' response is quite well known here. He typically distinguishes between a kind of demonstration, which is propter quid, and a demonstration known as a, a quia demonstration. Sometimes these two demonstrations are um, translated as a, a priori and a posteriori demonstrations. I don't really like that sort of terminology. It's a more modern philosophical post-Kantian kind of terminology. So I'll stick with propter quid and quia, uh, just in drawing them out. Um, a propter quid demonstration. It proceeds um, from something known about the cause or about the essence of, of the cause to the effect. Whereas a queer demonstration proceeds um, from something known about an effect to the cause itself. And so it's helpful just to pick out an example here. This is an example that Aquinas offers in his commentary on Aristotle's posterior analytics. You take a, the following. This is a queer demonstration. Whatever doesn't twinkle is near. The planets do not twinkle. Therefore, the planets are near. Okay, so whatever doesn't twinkle is near. The planets do not twinkle. Therefore, the planets are near. So here, twinkle, it plays the role of the middle, and it serves to unite the minor term planets with the major term near. What this syllogism establishes is not the non-twinkling of the planets from a knowledge of their nearness to us. Okay, so it doesn't reason about something known about the cause, the planets in this case, to some effect, the fact that they don't twinkle. Rather, it establishes that we know the planets are near because of their lack of twinkle. It reasons from some effect or lack thereof known about the planets to something about the planets themselves, to the cause itself. And that's going to be the case for demonstrations with God's existence. That's how Aquinas thinks that we demonstrate God's existence as he lays out in the Contra Gentiles 1 and in the Summa Theologiae. So we can demonstrate God's existence by considering some effect which God has produced, and that will permit us to reason to God as the cause of that. But the interesting thing here, it's, it's not just any effect which will allow us to reason to God. This is important. Sometimes this is overlooked. It's not just any particular effect that we can latch on to and reason to God's existence. We look at the five ways, for instance. Thomas focuses on motion, causality, necessity and contingency, participation, degrees of perfection, finality. And you might, you know, you, you could be forgiven the, for thinking, well, Thomas is kind of just finding all these different ways to try and get us to God. But this isn't the case. If we turn to uh, texts where Thomas looks at the history of the concept of creation, and there's two particular texts where he does this. In the De Potentia Dei, question three, and in the Summa Theologiae, those questions on creation and around question 40, that, that's in the Prima Pars, he gives us a potted history of philosophical reflection on creation. He starts with the pre-Socratic philosophers, and then he works his way up through Plato and Aristotle um, into philosophers that he calls the aliqui, the others, most likely the Neoplatonists, the Islamic philosophers and Christian thinkers. And in these texts, what he points out is that we get a more and more accurate uh, philosophical account of the nature of creation the closer we get to a consideration of things in terms of their very existence, or what he calls their essay, their to be, the act of existence. We don't get an appropriate account of creation until we get an account of creatures and a thinking about creatures in terms of their act of existence. So that when we think about a cause of that, i.e. a cause of their essay, we have an absolute primary cause without which nothing would be. Indeed, in one of the texts there, he says, once you get a philosophical account of a primary cause, which is a primary cause of essay, we have an account of a creator and creation, which is in accord with the Catholic faith. Okay, so he says that in one of those texts. Creatures are creatures then precisely because they have essay as distinct from their essences. That's the important distinction between essence and existence that um, uh, we heard alluded to in the, uh, in the first talk. So it, it's essay then, the act of existence, which is an effect of some cause without which there would be nothing. And that stands to reason, because if we want to reason to God as a primary cause of all things, it's going to have to involve existential act in some way, because if it doesn't involve existential act, if it doesn't involve God bringing about the very existence of the things he creates, then there's something left over of which God wouldn't, wouldn't be the cause or wouldn't have a causal influence over. 
But precisely because esse is the act of all acts, without which you have no actuality, then to reason to God as the primary cause, we need to latch on to created esse as that created effect, which will allow us to perform a queer demonstration, which gets us to God as the primary cause. I think that um, has an implication for how we read uh, the five ways and how we understand the five ways. It's my contention that each one of the ways is revelatory of existential act, and that's what gets us uh, to the conclusion in each of the ways. And more could be said on the five ways, but you know, this isn't about the summa theology, eh? this is about the contra gentiles. So, um, the effect is essay. We need to reason from essay to a primary cause of essay, and that will give us God as the, the source of all that is, without which there would be nothing. So what then is Aquinas' way to God, which appears in these very, uh, you know, throughout his various works in one way or another? Well, it goes like this. And so this is the demonstration for God. This is, this is a general um, account of Aquinas' demonstration for God, Aquinas' way to God, as I take it. Begin by distinguishing between two, two kinds of causal series. Okay, so there are two types of causal series. There are what are known as per accidents or accidentally ordered series and per se or essentially ordered series. The terminology there isn't, isn't too important. The, 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 the labeling of the series as essentially ordered and accidentally ordered, um, that really is in SCOTUS for whom clarification of how these, the metaphysics of these seri series was you know, quite important. So he labels them essentially ordered and accidentally ordered. Thomas, um, he prefers the terminology of per se or per accidents ordered series. Um, but the, the just in case that terminology trips you up, it's not really that important. But for Thomas, there is this distinction between per accidents and per se ordered series. So what are the metaphysics of these series? In an accidentally ordered series or a per accidents series, such a series, such a causal series, is one in which the members of the series possess the causality of the series in virtue of what they are. Okay, so the members of accidentally ordered series possess whatever causality is in the series, making it a causal series, they possess that causality in virtue of what they are. So the typical example here, which is often offered, is a series of fathers producing sons. A father produces a son, his son produces a son, his son produces a son, and so on and so forth, and so back and so back. So the kind of causality which is in question here is the causality of paternity, fatherhood, begetting, generating, whatever you want to call it, that specific kind of causality, okay? So the son wouldn't exist, he wouldn't be in being without his father um, engaging in the appropriate kind of causality which brings about the son. So just, you know, hold that in your minds, that kind of causality, the causality of paternity or the causality of fatherhood. So we have a father who produces a son. Let's call the father Peter and let's call the son James. Now let's say James grows up and let's say James has a son called John. So Peter, our original father, is now a grandfather, okay? So Peter is the father of James and James is the father of John. John is Peter's grandson and James is John's father. Now, who is the cause of John? Who caused John? Well, obviously, the father caused John. James caused John. We wouldn't typically say that the grandfather was the cause of the grandson, but some might want to say that. Some might want to say, you know, hold on a minute. If you're going to deny that um, Peter is the cause of John, if Peter hadn't acted causally, you wouldn't have James, and thereby you wouldn't have had John. But consider this. Imagine. Peter, he's the father of James, okay? So imagine Peter's the father of James, and James has just been born, and James and his mother, they're in the hospital, and they're recuperating, and uh, Peter decides to go out and uh, what's what we call here in Ireland, wet the baby's head, and um, that has nothing to do with baptism um, or the Holy Spirit. That has everything to do with a spirit of a different kind when children are born, and Peter goes out, decides to wet the baby's head, have a few drinks, and tragic accident occurs, and Peter dies. Okay, so Peter has fathered James. Okay, James is still there. James is still in the hospital. Peter is now dead. God rest him. James grows up. James is still able to produce his own son, John, even though Peter is off the scene. James doesn't need Peter's help to father John. Okay, so the father doesn't need his own father's help in order to produce his own son. Why is that? Because the sort of causality involved in per accident series 
is such that the members of the series have it in virtue of what they are. So James has the causality of fatherhood of, or paternity in virtue of being a biologically functioning male, not in virtue of Peter still existing and helping him out with that causality so that he can produce John. That's not what happens. Rather, James is still the kind of thing that he is, a biologically functioning male, regardless of Peter's being there or not being there. So it's James who produces John. The father produces the son. It's not the grandfather who produces the grandson. And that's a general feature of Paraxidon's ordered series. Because the members of the series possess the causality of the series in virtue of what they are, the series can continue whilst earlier members drop out of the series. So a father can produce a son, the father can drop out, the son produces a son, he drops out, he produces a son, he drops out, and so on and so on and so on. Okay? So long as you have a member of the series who has the causality of the series in virtue of what it is, the series can continue. And that's a feature of a Paraxidon's ordered series. Uh, but by contrast, in per se ordered series, the case is different. So in per se or essentially ordered series, it's not the case that the members of the series have the causality of the series in virtue of what they are. Rather, they don't have the causality of the series in virtue of what they are, but they are dependent for that causality. They participate in something for that causality. So the typical example that Thomas uses is the mind moves the hand to move the stick to move the stone. It's an example which um, comes up in the first way and the second way. Um, I kind of change it to the example of a golf player. Um, so you imagine uh, the golf player, he moves his hands to move the club, to move the ball. Um, I hope we're all familiar with golf. Um, so this is what's happening. And in this case, the golf player, that's the mental agent, okay? He moves his hands to move the, the, the club, to move the ball. Now think about what he's moving there. The hands, the club, and the ball. In themselves, they don't have motion. They don't have motion in virtue of what they are as hands, clubs, and balls. So they're not like fathers and sons in the Paraxin series, which have paternity or fatherhood in virtue of what they are, biologically functioning males. The hands, the club, and the ball don't have motion in virtue of what they are. So they depend on something which does have motion in virtue of what it is. In other words, it can originate the motion of the series in virtue of what it is. And the golf player as a mental agent can do that because mental agency is it's just a feature of mental agency that you can inaugurate motion just out of whimsy. So the golf player in this series is the primary cause of motion for the hands of the club and the ball. He is a primary cause, not because he's first, but because he possesses the causality of the series in virtue of what he is. Whereas the hands, the club, and the ball are secondary because they participate in the causality, which the golf player, the mental agent, um, gives to the series. So that's what it is to be a primary cause in essentially ordered series, to possess the causality of the series essentially. And that's what it is to be secondary causes or secondary members of the series to participate or be dependent on that causality, to have it distinct from, the, from your essence. Okay. Now, given that um, the hands, the club, and the ball are essentially immobile in the per se series, if there is no primary cause for their motion or for their mobility, they would remain immobile. Okay, they don't have the wherewithal in themselves to engage in motion. The golf player does, and so they're dependent for that causality on the golf player. So if you take away the golf player from the per se ordered series, the hands, the club, and the ball just don't move. It just feels as a causal series. So imagine the golf player, he goes to the golf course, he tees up, he goes to swing his club, and he's struck by lightning, tragically dies. There's a lot of people down in these causal series, I'm sorry about that, but he gets struck by lightning, um, tragically dies, the motion ceases in the series. The hands, the club, and the ball just cease to move unless some other, unless some other cause of motion takes the place of the golf player, such as gravity or some basic physical force. So in the Mind, Hand, Stick, Stone series, in the Per Se series, the members of that series are essentially without the causality of the series, in which case, unless there's a primary cause, which does essentially have the causality of the series, 
those uh, secondary members just wouldn't have the, the causality of that particular series, in which case you just wouldn't have a causal series in question. So here's what we perceive the two different kinds of causal series. In accidental series, the earlier members don't, uh, don't need to exist in order for later members to remain. So Peter doesn't need to remain in existence for James to grow up and follow John. Similarly, James doesn't need to remain for John to grow up and follow whomever. Uh, so the earlier ones can pass away, but the later ones can remain. So there's no problem if there's no first cause of this series. There's no problem with that series being without a first. Accidentally ordered series can be potentially infinite. Because when you think about it, at any one time in that series, it's only actually finite. You've got a father who produces a son. The father drops out. That son produces a son. He drops out. At any one moment, you only have the two members of the series. Okay? So it can continue on and on and on. It's actually infinite, but it's potentially finite. That's related to Aquinas' contention that the universe, creation, can be without a beginning, yet still require a cause. By contrast, essentially ordered series, per se ordered series, the earlier members can't pass away without the later members passing away. Take away the mental agent. The hands, the club, and the ball are immobile. They don't move. So there needs to be something primary which originates the causality of the series. And it's able to originate it precisely because it has in itself the causality of the series in question. So that's how it originates things, uh, the, the causality in the series. And so essentially ordered series, they cannot be without a primary cause. They can't be infinite. And that's just a feature of the metaphysics of essentially ordered series. So Aquinas' strategy then is going to be, okay, these are two kinds of causal series. He recognizes both of them. Let's, let's ponder this per se ordered series for a bit. Um, given that per se ordered series um, can't be without a primary cause, can we isolate some absolute causal property without which nothing would be? Locate that in per se ordered series and thus infer that there has to be a primary cause of that series which possesses that causality in itself in virtue of what it is. And some of you will probably, you know, can guess where I'm going to go with this. Um, but just to reflect on per se ordered series and causal properties for a moment. Um, think about the mental agent in the mind, hand, st stick, stone example or the golf example. Okay, that's a primary cause, no doubt, but it's not an absolute primary cause. Things wouldn't cease to be if uh, golf players didn't go to the golf course. Okay, if a golf game was cancelled, it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of creation. All right. So whilst the golf player is a primary cause, it's not an absolute primary cause. Why is that? Because motion is not an absolute kind of causality without which there would be nothing. Okay, motion is not an absolute type of causality without which nothing would exist. Rather, motion is just one kind of causality, but there are other types of causality as well. So in being the primary cause of motion, the golf player is only primary with regards to motion, but not absolutely primary. That's why it's important when considering per se causal series and demonstrations for God's existence that we isolate some absolute causal property without which nothing would be. Now recall what Thomas says, said earlier in the De Potentia and in the Summa Theologiae, that we get an accurate philosophy or metaphysics of creation when we consider creatures in terms of their essay, in terms of their existence. Because without existence, creatures would simply be nothing. So once we can establish that there is a primary cause of the very existence or the essay of things, then we have an absolute primary cause. So essay is going to be the, the feature of creatures, which in Thomas's mind will allow us to infer or demonstrate some primary cause of all things. Is essay, the act of existence, is that a kind of causal property which takes its place in per se ordered series? Or is it like the causality of fatherhood in per accidents ordered series? Well, this is where the distinction of essence and existence comes in. This is why in the Dantia Essentia, chapter four, before Thomas outlines his proof for God's existence, he argues for the real distinction between essence and existence. Because if you recall, in per accidents ordered series, the members of that series possess the causality of the series in virtue of what they are. But if there's a real distinction between essence and existence, 
things which exist, composites of essence and existence, they don't possess existence, essay, in virtue of what they are because it's distinct from their essence. Okay? It's distinct from what they are. Given distinction of essence and existence, existence is a causal feature which things have, but not essentially, not in virtue of what they are. So the existence of things is not like the causality in the fathers and sons, i.e. in per accident series, rather the existence or the essay that things have is more like the motion in the hands, uh, club, and ball uh, series, in the essentially ordered series, the per se ordered series. So given the distinction of essence and existence and the fact then that the causality of existence is a causality which things have, but they don't have in virtue of what they are, existence as a distinct kind of causality is locatable in per se ordered series. But what have we just seen about per se ordered series? That they cannot be without a primary cause and still remain as causal series. Without the primary cause of the causality of that series, you just lose the causal series. In this case, if there is no primary cause of exi the existence that things have, then things just wouldn't exist. And what's the nature of a primary cause in per se ordered series? It's something which possesses existence or which has, ex it's something which possesses the causality of the series in virtue of what it is. So in this case, the primary cause of existence is going to be something which has existence in virtue of its very essence. In other words, its essence is identical to its existence, as opposed to all those essence existence composites, which would not have existence unless they participated in this primary cause for that causality of existence. And Thomas calls this primary cause pure existence itself. Ipsum esse subsistens, or in the language of the De Ente uh, from the Liber De Causis, uh, esse tantum, uh, pure existence. So all things exist, they have existence uh, precisely because they are caused in their existence by something which has it in itself to exist, and that's pure existence itself. Um, then all things are related to this uh, in the way that you know, things on earth are related to the light of the sun, unless they stand in the appropriate relation to what is pure existence itself, they're not going to be illuminated by its existence. That's Thomas's uh, Neoplatonism coming in there, this notion of participation, which he uses uh, to characterize uh, creatures and their relations to God. So there's a primary cause for all things without, without which there would be nothing. And this is what we un understand God to be. In the Summa Theologiae, in the Said Contra, Thomas says, um, uh, as part of the Said Contra, he says, well, look, God is he who is. So, of course, God exists. So at the end of each of the five ways, whenever Thomas concludes, and this is what we understand God to be, what do we understand God to be? He who is, per the said contra. Um, so uh, this account then, uh, Aquinas' way to God, which arrives at a conclusion of a primary God as pure existence itself, um, it resonates quite closely um, with the revelation of God as he who is in Exodus. And in other contexts, whenever sometimes I give this talk um, in various contexts, I kind of say, you know, you need to ask yourselves, um, is that just a coincidence that, um, you know, somebody who's not a philosopher, not a metaphysician at all, doesn't think philosophically, the author of the book of Exodus, um, comes up with a conception of God as he who is with no known historical antecedent? Is it just a coincidence that he comes up with that, um, which a few millennia later, some of the best philosophical reasoning presents without appeal to scripture? Or do you kind of have to countenance that that's not a coincidence, that the, the author of the book of Exodus had access to some other resource which gave him that concept of God as he who is? I just kind of leave that out there. It's a bit tantalizing. Also, with regard to the five ways, um, given that the said contra states that, you know, God is he who is, and each of the ways says that this is what we understand God to be, each of the five ways must reason to God um, in some shape or form at the end as pure existence itself, as he who is uh, responsible for existential act. And that's going to gloss how we interpret uh, the causal features of each of the ways, motion, causality, necessity, and contingency, and so on. But enough about that. Let's get on to classical theism and the contra gentiles. So uh, we've got about 15 minutes. Okay. Thomas's conclusion, then, there's a primary co cause, source of all it is, this is pure essay, pure actuality, pure actuality, okay? Um, essay is the act of all acts and the perfection of all perfections. Um, so you have this, you know, primary cause, source of all it is, pure act, without any potentiality, 
That's the cornerstone of his classical theism. On this view, anything other than this primary cause stands in potency to it in some respect. And given the lack of potency in God, his pure actuality, Thomas is able to derive all the divine attributes of classical theism, uh, simplicity, infinity, impassibility, eternity, goodness, all of that. And Thomas's way of reasoning here is that, look, we, we've arrived at this primary cause, um, pure existence itself. Well, what would it be like to be pure existence itself? What can we infer from that, that God is pure existence itself, pure essay? And so he deduces the divine attributes on the basis of considering God like that. He still maintains his intellectual humility about our natural knowledge of God's nature, because notice something. He said very little about God's nature. All he has affirmed, given the metaphysics of per se ordered series, is that God's essence is identical to his existence. Hasn't said anything else. And so when he deduces the divine attributes, he does it on the basis of God's essence being identical to his existence. Now let's turn to the contra gentiles. Okay. And what I call the oddness of the contra gentiles. This, what I've just articulated is Aquinas' way to God, all right? That appears, that sort of reasoning appears throughout Aquinas' works when he deals um, uh, with, with these issues, and it you know, pops up in a, a number of places. And these are all very well-known issues in Aquinas' philosophy of God, um, but I think it's important to repeat the centrality of the notion of essay in these discussions. Um, but thanks to you know, some, some of the great work of you know, Thomists in the 20th century, um, not just the likes of Etienne Gilson, Joseph Owens, uh, and the existentialist Thomists, but also thinkers like Cornelio Fabro and Louis Bertrand Geiger, who really um, shone a light on uh, the, the Platonic metaphysics in Thomas's thought. The, the centrality of the notion of essay um, and God's causality with regard to essay is now um, a well-worn field in Thomist studies. But when we turn to the Contra Gentiles, book one, we see that whilst Thomas affirms the need for a queer demonstration, that the demonstration of God does have to be a queer demonstration, reasoning from effects to cause, when we come to the demonstration of God in chapter 13, the arguments are almost exclusively Aristotelian, based on Aristotle's demonstrations from motion, from the physics, from philosophy of nature. They're not demonstrations which, you know, turn on the metaphysics of essay. They don't even really turn on the metaphysics of act and potency, except for a little illusion that Thomas gives in uh, the first way of Contra Gentiles, where he's uh, defending the, prin the, the principle that whatever is moved is moved by another. He, I think it's his third defense of that. He brings in act and potency. But for the main, he follows Aristotle's method of demonstration uh, of a prime mover from the physics. So, the, the, the fact that the metaphysical context doesn't appear here, it's quite striking. Um, and, you know, that's, that's what makes it come across as odd. In Contra Gentiles um, 13, uh, we're treated to more or less physical arguments for God's existence rather than the more me f familiar metaphysical arguments. And this is all the more surprising, I think, for two reasons. The first reason, then, is kind of related to what I've been saying, that at the beginning of his career, all the way through, Art Thomas articulates an argument from essay or from the metaphysics of essay, the metaphysics of actuality, uh, from the De Ente, right on through. Similar reasoning can be found in works leading up to and contemporaneous with the Contra Gentiles, such as the commentary on De Hebdomadibus, the De Potentia Dei. If we even look at the De, De Potentia Dei, that's particularly striking, since in question three, uh, in the actual article where Thomas considers the history of creation, and he's arguing that, you know, essay is the all-important factor here. He outlines three arguments for God's existence, attributing them to Plato, Aristotle, and Avicenna, all of which involve a, co a consideration of essay, and all of which, it could be argued, are not really um, uh, accurate to the historical Plato, uh, Aristotle, and Avicenna, but they're Thomas's um, very charitable readings of those philosophers. So even when it's considering other philosophers, Thomas is keen to read his metaphysics of essay, even into Aristotle himself. But then we get the Contra Gentiles 1.13, and we get the arguments from Aristotle and their physical arguments. There's, some, there, there's something funny going on here. You come to the Summa Theologiae, and as I've been alluding, the five ways offer very similar arguments to Contra Gentiles 1.13, but they're quite stripped down. They're immensely stripped down, and I mean, in my view, they're more satisfying than uh, chapter 13 of the Contra Gentiles. So, at least within the corpus, the Contra Gentiles chapter 13, it offers us a bit of a break 
Thomas goes off on a tangent um, where he doesn't pursue uh, the argumentation that based on essay that he's you know more familiar with and he finds more pleasing. Also, throughout his career, Thomas maintains that God's existence is demonstrated in first philosophy. It's in metaphysics that God's existence is demonstrated, not in physics, not in the philosophy of nature. It's in metaphysics. He's got systematic reasons for that. Um, when we turn to the commentary on the De Trinitate of Boethius, um, Thomas is very explicit about this. Um, and indeed, uh, there's a translation of the De Trinitate of Boethius uh, chapters, um, questions four and five by Armand Maurer, which is actually titled The Division of Methods of the Sciences. And when he goes into the Division of Methods of the Sciences, um, it, in that, he points out that it, it is in metaphysics where we demonstrate a primary cause for all things. And then in theology, in theology proper, we proceed to consider the nature of that primary cause based on what Revelation tells us. Now, just think about that for, for a minute. In the De Trinitate, Thomas is explicit that it's in metaphysics um, God's existence is demonstrated. Now, the beginning of the Summa Contra Gentiles, book one, uh, the first 40 or so chapters, so including chapter 13, Jean-Pierre Torel tells us that the beginning of the Contra Gentiles is written on the same parchment and uses the same Parisian ink as Thomas's commentary on the De Trinitate. So Thomas is writing the commentary on the De Trinitate at a very close temporal period to when he's writing Contra Gentiles 1, chapter 13. Yet in De Trinitate, he states, you know, God's existence is demonstrated in metaphysics, but in Summa Contra Gentiles, he uses physical arguments. So in a text contemporaneous with Contra Gentiles 1, written in the same geographical context, same teaching period, and even written with the same stationery, Thomas affirms the approach to God is metaphysical, and then he abandons that in the Contra Gentiles. He offers physical demonstrations. So I hope I've labored that point enough. Why? Why does he do this? This is, this is interesting, I think, you, you know, just in Thomas studies. I think that the solution lies here in Aquinas' intentions when he writes the Contra Gentiles. Whilst the Contra Gentiles is a systematically theological work, it has a significant apologetical approach to it. Because here, Thomas, he states explicitly, he wants to show the truth of the Catholic faith and set aside errors opposed to it. And he wants to begin with natural reason. As we saw in the first lecture, the first three books of the Contra Gentiles proceed on the basis of natural reason. Then it's on the fourth book where we look at those very truths, those dogmatic truths of the Catholic faith. The, Dominic the Dominican missionary context, which uh, Father Thomas alluded to at the very beginning of the conference, it's, it's heavily disputed. Torrell points this out. Uh, Torrell states that a more likely explanation, which Van Steenbergen suggested, is that Thomas envisaged an audience of those who are already Catholic, but who would come into contact with educated non-believers. Okay, so people who are already Catholic, but who are coming into contact with these non-believers, and so there's an apologetical tone to it. Thomas himself mentions Jews, Muslims, and pagans. So in the context of apologetics, one, unfortunately, doesn't have the luxury of the classroom or a double semester metaphysics course to set things out, nor can you presuppose a previous arts degree with a fair amount of metaphysics. Anybody who's tried to engage in discussion on social media about this, on Facebook, uh, don't even go near Twitter with this, but on Facebook, you know, will realize that people just don't get the metaphysics of essay. Even, you know, when they're reading the metaphysics of essay, they just don't get it. And no doubt Thomas was aware of that in his day, that this, you know, unique metaphysics, which, you know, I'm sure he was fully conscious that he's reading into his predecessors. Not everybody is going to accept. What the apologist needs is arguments, lots of them, to get the point across to whomever he is preaching. This is what you see in the chapters in the Contra Gentiles. It's very odd for a chapter of the Contra Gentiles just to give you one, you know, argument, just to give you one takedown argument that you would get, say, in the disputed questions or in the Summa Theologiae. Thomas just lines up argument after argument after argument with different sort of approaches and different um, tones to them and different emphases. And that reflects the apologetical nature of the work that the apologist, whilst in possession of a systematic theology, can draw on these different arguments given the context. Now, given Thomas's context in the 13th century, the obvious philosophical common ground 
for those educated Catholics who are going to come into contact with Jews, Muslims, and um, pagans is the philosophy of Aristotle. So in offering a demonstration of God's existence and everything that follows from that, um, it's the philosophy of Aristotle um, which is going to be the most useful. It's going to have the greatest utility, the best utilitarian benefit in defending the Catholic faith. It's not false to say that Thomas's proofs of God in the Contra Gentiles chapter 13 are very awkward. They're very clunky. Thomas, he moves very slowly through them. He's not comfortable. It's the longest presentation of a set of arguments for God's existence throughout his corpus, of which I'm aware. Um, in dealing just with these arguments in his book, Metaphysical Thought of Aquinas, Whipple, I think, takes about 20 to 30 pages just to cover these. Whereas when it comes to all of the five ways together, um, you know, he's very quickly, he goes through each of the ways. Um, Thomas doesn't really get into a stride uh, in these arguments in chapter 13. He's often laboring on clarifying what Aristotle held. He tries to make up for deficiencies and disagreements in Aristotle's thought. And I don't think that can be attributed to weakness on Thomas's part. You know, because Thomas has these very neat, very efficient proofs of God from the De Ente, the De Potentia, later the Summa Theologiae. They're very neat, they're very efficient, but here you do not have a set of neat, efficient proofs. Thomas is trying to work through these proofs of Aristotle and try to elucidate them in the best way he can. Um, despite the Aristotelian starting point in motion, um, Thomas does strive in the Contra Gentiles to think about God, to try to arrive at God as pure actuality. So he starts from a starting point in physics with Aristotelian motion, but he, he, as quick as he can, he tries to get to pure actuality. And this is only after he establishes the eternity of God, and from that infers the lack of passive potency in him. And that's in chapter 16. Once there's no passive potency in God, once you know Thomas can show that, we have God as pure actuality. And the more sort of me existential metaphysics, the metaphysics of essay, which Thomas is used to th uses to think about God, that begins to appear and the pace starts to pick up. Thomas gets into the stride and the various demonstrations about God's nature fall into place so that when he gets to book two and he gets into creation, he just zips through that. You know, it's beautiful the way he goes through creation in book two, as opposed to the slower sort of clunky pace at the start of uh, book one. So it's my contention then that it's only when Thomas gets to the stage of affirming God as pure actuality that he begins to feel at ease and he can produce argumentation with which he's more comfortable. In other contexts, he utilizes his metaphysics of essay to arrive quite quickly at God's existence as pure actuality. These are the non-apologetical contexts. But in the Contra Gentiles, he makes use of Aristotle's proofs for motions and considerations pertaining to physical motion in order to get to that same stage. So I think all this reveals something about the reasonability of belief in God today. First of all, um, is, is belief in God's existence today reasonable? Well, yes, obviously. We have, I think it's eminently defensible that we have a metaphysical proof of God's existence and it does establish a primary cause of all that is. So I think that's the case. So um, if that's what you want to know, is belief in God reasonable? Yes, it is. But it's often the case that we can presuppose our philosophical school of thought. We often do that and th thomists are not excluded. Sometimes thomists are excoriated for presupposing the language and the concepts of Thomism. So what we need to do, we need to present our thinking to non-Thomists in a way that is intelligible. Now, this doesn't mean, at least I don't think it means, this doesn't mean making Thomas, for example, intelligible to, say, analytic philo philosophers or continental philosophers and um, abandoning Thomas's own terminology and Thomas's own concepts, okay? I don't think it means that because I think a lot is lost in those translation exercises when you try to make Thomas intelligible to these other philosophical traditions. Thomas has to be understood as Thomas. If he has a philosophy, then any philosopher of whatever school can understand Thomas as Thomas. And the same can be said about any major philosophical thinker. Kant has to be understood as Kant. Um, He's notoriously difficult, um, but if you stick with him, he makes sense. Um, even, you know, in the analytical tradition, for example, you have thinkers as dense and difficult as somebody like, you know, John McDowell or Wilfred Sellers, who have really good, important philosophical points to make, and we should learn for, from them. 
but we don't insist. Okay, see, McDowell, your talk about conceptual operations, the myth of the given, and all of that, um, you need to translate that into a context which makes sense to us. Well, I mean, McDowell or one of his defenders would be, you know, well within his rights to saying, well, look, I am making a point, and I can only make this point with this terminology and with these various concepts. If you are um, legitimately interested in pursuing uh, matters of truth in philosophy, then sit with this, think about it, think your way into it. And I think it's the same for Thomism. Any philosopher can think his way into Thomism with enough effort, yet we Thomists have to be obliging in making Thomism intelligible to them. We need to do what needs to be done. We need to be prepared to break down arguments and the metaphysics of arguments and be prepared to explain what we mean to non-Thomists. We have to do what Thomas does at the beginning of the Contra Gentiles. He is meeting his interlocutors where they are at, i.e. with Aristotle, but he very quickly gets to, well, Thomism, his own metaphysics of essay. He very quickly gets to that from meeting them where they are at. He takes them through a, you know, a way of philosophical thinking that they would find um, agreeable, and he takes them to where he wants to go with the metaphysics of essay. So out of an, Aristotel an initially Aristotelian context, we move to a more characteristic Thomistic context. So unless we take the time and effort as Thomists to start from the start and explain all of our metaphysical apparatus needed for Thomas's way to God, um, we need to find a way that allows our audience to reach the high ground very quickly. Now, in my experience, the most efficient way to do this is with that distinction of ordered causal series, articulation of existence as a causal feature in per se series, and conclusion of a primary cause that's pure existence itself. I think that has the benefit of keeping lots of what's necessary and somewhat intuitive, whilst it passes over other metaphysical issues such as real distinction, composition, participation, the nature of essay, and all of that that can be clarified as the need arises. That's why I think that the, the argument, the proof in the De Ente, is just such a powerful proof, because in the previous four chapters, Thomas takes you from a very straightforward starting point and just works you right up to that proof of God. So our interlocutors, our audience, they may indeed raise queries which require responses and we go deeper into that metaphysics. But the fact that these questions are being asked for our audience shows that the listener, the interlocutor, is beginning to think like a Thomist in these matters and is starting to explore the Thomistic metaphysics for himself. That's what Thomas does in the Contra Gentiles book one. And that's what I think we Thomists have to do today in a contemporary context in defending the reasonability of a belief in the existence of God. So that's what I have for you. Um, I went for 50 minutes, sorry, I meant to go for 45, but Father Thomas gave me a five minute introduction, so it was still 45 minutes. So I'm happy to take some questions. Let's have a look. Right, um, Jonathan Lunin, I would like to ask Gavin a question by audio. Go ahead, Jonathan, open up your mic. Great, I, thank you very much. Uh, Jonathan Lunin here from Cornell. So um, the, the irony, of course, is that while Thomas was trying to argue from the physics of Aristotle in SCG, today we see um, physicists trying to argue from the physics of today that God does not exist. And I thought that in your 2012 paper, you did a very nice job of uh, disposing of uh, Hawking's uh, spatially and, and temporally boundless cosmos as, as a way around the existence of God. But the argument now has moved more toward things that, um, in, in, in a sense, one could almost say are, are causally ordered with the universe. For example, uh, quantum fluctuations in a vacuum field, for example, uh, and, and so forth, uh, as if these are spontaneous causes of the universe. And can you offer a few points based on what you talked about, about how to argue those things away. I mean, one I can imagine is that even a, 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 even a vacuum that has quantum fluctuations has parts to it and uh, is not purely actual because something has to actualize uh, this, this vacuum field anyway. But, but can you give us a little insight on that? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Um, yeah, that Stephen Hawking paper that I wrote in 2012, you know, that was kind of the initial foray into, into all of this, and that culminated in the book, the 2019 book. Um, so thanks for reminding me of that. Um, I think the point that you make is an interesting one, and it's one that we Thomas should be engaged with. 
because as you say, you know, physicists, they, they do try to argue um, from some fundamental physical features of the universe to the spontaneous emergence of the universe. But it seems to me, uh, and this is why I think the distinction of essence and existence is so important, that if we can isolate those fundamental features of the universe from which the universe spontaneously emerges, we can establish distinction of essence and existence therein, that even those features don't exist essentially. They're not pure essay, or as you, know, you were saying in your question, they're not pure actuality. So in thinking about you know, whatever kind of features they are, just interrogate what, what is the essence of those and you know, consider, is it essential for them to exist? Um, if not, there's a distinction of essence and existence therein, and so they're locatable in per se ordered series, and you know, the metaphysics goes through as before. How does that sit with you, with you, Jonathan? Yeah, I think that's the right approach. And of course, the most difficult step is not that argument, but even getting a skeptical physicist or astronomer to sit down with, with you and say, you know, now let's talk some metaphysics. But that's a, that's a bigger challenge that uh, I don't want to take up time here for. But yes, <laughs> your answer is, is, uh, is what I was looking for. Thank you. Okay, great. Um, so let's see. So Parisa to everyone, let's say questions. Can you give another maybe non-biological example of accidental series or accidentally ordered series? Yeah. What is the role of proper philosophy of time on the distinction between two different types of series? Do we need it in order to distinguish between the two? And higher essence and existence united. Can you please elaborate on the essential difference between philosophy of nature and metaphysics first philosophy? All right. So, you know, straight to the jugular there. Um, okay. So another example um, of a uh, uh, per accidents ordered series, at least uh, another one that emerges in St. Thomas, is um, you, you can imagine just, you know, so he gives the example of a builder using, you know, his tools to build a house. And, you know, actually the metaphysics of this series came up earlier in the week when we were talking about the, 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 these issues uh, at, uh, at another online conference. So it, it's, it's good that you bring this up. Uh, and that's why I have this example in the mind. So you have a builder using his tools to build a house, okay? So that, that, that's a typical, you know, per se ordered series. And think about his tools for a minute, okay? So um, let, let's say he uses a saw, and let's say that that saw breaks, and so he uses a different saw, and that saw breaks, and he uses a different saw, and that saw breaks, and so on, and so on, and so on, and so on. So just imagine that series of saws which the builder is using, okay? Though, those series of saws are accidentally related to each other. They have the causality, you know, of being able to cut something like that, of being sharp in themselves. Um, and so they're accidentally related to each other. Saw A, saw B, saw C. Saw B does not depend on saw A for its causality, its sharpness, its ability to cut. Saw C doesn't depend on the causality of saw B for its sharpness or ability to cut. So there would be a, a non-biological example of an accidental series. Now, what is the role of the proper philosophy of time on a distinction between two different types of series? Do we need it in order to distinguish between the two? Um, the short answer is no. Um, you don't, uh, the, 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 the nature of time and whether you adopt the A theory or the B theory um, or a, a different account of time, um, it doesn't really apply here because time is, the fe is a feature of things which are locatable, say, in per se ordered series, but in the per se ordered series who, whose causal feature is essay or existence, um, time isn't a causal feature. So whether you hold the A theory or B theory or whatever other theory, um, such things which are so temporally, temporally ordered or temporally considered um, will still participate in existence given distinction of essence and existence. So the, philosophy, the proper philosophy of time, yes, important, absolutely an important issue in, in metaphysics and philosophy of nature, um, but not, not so relevant to this kind of argumentation. Higher essence and existence united. Um, can you elaborate on this? Okay, so essence and existence are united as potency and act. Essence stands to existence as potency to act. So the act of existence actualizes the essence Interesting issues there for uh, whether or not essence pre-exists existence. It doesn't. Okay, that's, a, that's the short answer to that. Um, but nevertheless, um, when you look at the existing thing, you can analyze it and its con component features. You can see that um, matter and form related as potency and act. 
Um, you, you've got um, supposite and essence, or supposite and nature, the individual and its nature, and you have essence and existence related as potency and act. So existence, the act of existence actualizes uh, the potency of the essence. Elaborate on the difference between philosophy of nature and metaphysics. Philosophy of nature considers ends mobile, mobile being, okay? So it considers being, which is subject to motion, whereas metaphysics, first philosophy, just considers being, okay? So it, it considers the nature of being itself rather than just mobile being. In the language of the De Trinitate, um, God, it's been a while since I, I looked at the De Trinitate, but in the language of it, metaphysics, first philosophy, um, considers Beings which are subject to matter and motion, neither for their existence nor for their being understood. So it considers um, beings subject to matter and motion, neither for their existence nor for their being understood. So it considers immaterial being. And then Thomas distinguishes between two types of immaterial being, those which are positively immaterial, such as God and angels, and those which are only neutrally immaterial. They're immaterial because they don't depend on matter and motion, but they're found in material things, and it gives the example of substance, potency, form, act, that sort of thing. And that's what metaphysics uh, considers. Uh, that's what the first philosophy uh, considers. Uh, whereas mobile being considers being, but as subject to motion. So that, that's the difference between the two. Um, okay, I hope, Parisa, that answered your questions. There's other questions here, so um, ho hopefully that maybe gives you a direction of where we would go with that. So Vladimir, question. Avicenna draws a distinction between metaphysical causality and causality reached in natural sciences. Causality in the sense of existence is research in metaphysics and causality in the sense of motion is research in natural sciences. Does Aquinas agree with this division? I say that sounds about right. Um, I think Aquinas would, um, you know, hold the same there. So I um, don't think there's anything more I can say about that, Vladimir, but I think that sounds right for St. Thomas. So Hunter Olson, I would like to ask Dr. Kerr, a uh, question via audio. Well, you can ask Gavin a question via audio. Go ahead, Hunter. Hi, uh, I just, uh, thank you so much for the presentation. I just wanted to ask you, uh, do Aquinas' five ways uh, that he gives in the Summa Theologica, do they depend on the metaphysics of essay for, for them to be demonstrative? Like is the, the argument, the first way is, does it depend on Aquinas' metaphysics of essay for, for it to, to reach its conclusion? Um. <laughs> <laughs> That's an interesting question. Yes, I think I, I think they do. I think they do. Now, I, I haven't published anything yet um, on whether or not um, you know they do, but I, I think they do. That unless you re, uh, unless you interpret each of the five ways as involving existential act, the metaphysics of essay, you can't get to the unmoved mover or the uncaused cause or the absolute on-cause source of necessity and contingency, and so on and so forth. And I think a reading of the five ways can be given from the text of the five ways themselves, which holds that um, each of those causal features, motion, causality, and so forth, is revelatory of existential act, and, and thus permits Thomas his conclusion that this is what we understand God to be, which per the said contra is he who is. How do you feel about that, Hunter? Thank you, Dr. Kerr. <laughs> right. Um, Jose, um, if I may, I would like to hear you expand about that aspect that you alluded to, namely the way that analytical philosophy is incapable of dealing with essay, because we almost immediately remember Geach and Miller and the way that they try to bring essay into the language of analytical philosophy and the way that they clearly distinguish between existence in the sense of the existential quantifier and existence in the sense of particular existence in the sense of being capable of initiating or suffering causal changes in the world. And so where do you think they failed? And why analytical philosophy, we, philosophy would be incapable un, un, of dealing with essay. Thanks a lot. Yeah, so <laughs> um, if you had spoke to me, you know, I think about four or five years ago about this, I, I wrote a paper um, just on this notion of essay and analytical philosophy and, wh and why I don't think any of the standard accounts of essay in analytical philosophy um, can, you know, can, can match up to Thomism. Um, I think that, okay, so there, there are two accounts of essay and analytical philosophy that I think come closest to matching Aquinas' metaphysics of essay. That of uh, what's known as actualism, um, Robert Adams, um, you know, so I think it was Robert Adams coined a term for that, uh, of actualism, that there's something important about actual, actually existing things which distinguishes them from 
uh, how they would be in all the other possible worlds. Something important about this actual world, which makes it actual, which distinguishes this world from other possible worlds. I think that comes quite close. And then uh, the view that you mention of uh, existence in terms of the, the particular existence um, of the individual, which is even more fundamental than quantification, that there is no individual substance there over which you can quantify unless you recognize some primordial um, existence. I think there are the two that come closest. I think the problem with actualism, and uh, this is one of the ones that I had a wee look at in, in the article and in chapter three of the 2015 book, I think the issue with actualism is that actuality, existence, is not explanatorily basic on that account. What is explanatorily basic is the logic of possible worlds, of how we think about possible worlds. So Kripke, Plantinga, and so forth. Um, how, how it is that we give an account of possibility, and then once we have the proper account of possibility, we can give an account of actuality. That's alien to Thomas. We don't understand actuality in terms of possibility. We understand possibility in terms of actuality for Thomas. So we have to think ourselves into the nature of actuality before we clarify the nature of a possibility. So that's why I think there's a problem with that account. And then with the, um, the other account, which just focuses on um, particular uh, existence, the particular existence of the individual, um, there's a distinction between existence conceived as um, the fact of a thing, existence as a fact, and existence as an ontological co-principle of essence. Existence as a fact is the kind of existence that you affirm in judgment when you judge or affirm that something is the case, where existence or essay as the ontological co-principle of essence is the real meaty slap on the table existence in the world. I think um, Geach and Miller are striving to get at existence as an ontological co-principle of essence, but I think they're doing so by considering um, existence as a fact, as the result of a process of judgment, when really it should be the other way around. We need to start with existence in the world and work our way up to judgment. So um, I guess that's why I've got a, I, would, I would take issue with Geach and Miller's approach. And, and in general then, the analytic philosophical approach, well, there's two issues there. The first is that there's no real identity to the analytical philosophy. It's kind of like what Augustine says about time. Um, you know, ask me, ask me what time, or don't ask me what time is, and I know what it is, but when you ask me what time is, I, I have trouble telling you. You know, analytical philosophy, it's a movement in philosophy, but if you ask one analytical philosopher what analytic philosophy is, another will disagree. I mean, you take a, an analytical philosopher, a quintessential analytical philosopher like Quine, okay? And then you take a, an analytical philosopher like Carnap, or, okay? They seem to be doing the, two, the, the same sort of project, okay? So they're, they're engaged in a, you know, a similar kind of project. You know, disagree fundamentally, ironically, you know, Quine disagreeing with Carnap. But, you know, two dogmas of empiricism, you know, it really just gets at the heart of, um, you know, logical empiricism. You know, Carnap, you know, after that is, you know, a bit of problems for him. Um, but you take that sort of philosophical approach, and then you take another philosophical approach in analytical philosophy, um, kind of one that I mentioned before, that of Sellers, McDowell, Brandon, the Pittsburgh School, um, even, let's throw Rory in there, maybe even Peter Strawson, where you get the Kantian, Hegelian, German idealist influences. And that would be quite, you know, contrasting as a philosophical project to the likes of Quine and Carnap. My, my point is, there are no doctrinal commitments which really seek to unify analytical philosophy. So you can have one saying that, you know, we do this kind of philosophy and the other saying this. And so an analytical philosopher can say, well, look, I understand Aquinas in, on essay. And I can do Aquinas' metaphysics of essay, and I'm an analytical philosopher, so obviously he's doing analytic philosophy. The problem with that is Thomas is just doing philosophy, and an analytical philosopher is a philosopher, and that's why he can, understand, he can engage with Thomas that way. Um, so, I mean, another reason why I have an issue with analytic philosophy and its engagement with Thomas in this regard is that it requires more of a phenomenological kind of thinking to think one's way into the metaphysics of essay. You kind of just have to confront essay, to, to ponder it, to uh, uh, think, think it through and dwell with it for a bit. I'm sounding a bit like Heidegger now, um, before you can understand the, the explanatory value and scope of essay. Whereas in analytical philosophy, that, that way of thinking yourself into things is typically rejected. Rather, we need to move from truth to truth to the affirmation of some as yet unknown truth. So 
that would be just some of my thoughts on that. Um, sorry, you know, I picked on the analytical philosophers. I could say the similar about the, you know, the, the non-analytic philosophers as well. Um, okay, so Father Thomas Davenport to everyone. You mentioned Aquinas seeming uncomfortable with trying to prove existence of God and the contra gentiles purely from the physics of Aristotle, and that the proofs in the Summa depend on the essay existence. Do you think Aquinas thinks the proofs purely from motion and physics and the contra gentiles actually work, or is it an incomplete proof? That's a really interesting question. Thomas, uh, no, not Thomas, sorry, Joseph Owens, um, he wrote an article um, called uh, The Proof from the Physics, and he actually goes through this issue. I mean, o Owens went through, you know, the, the whole first way in actuality in the first way uh, and made the same sort of point. He notes that for Thomas, when Thomas con comments on the proofs from the physics, uh, whilst, whilst he ends the physics saying, and this is what we understand God to be, Thomas actually reasons that the proofs from the physics really only get you to a first mover of the outermost sphere, okay? An immaterial first mover of the outermost sphere of the heavens. That's not necessarily God. That could be a separate substance. Um, so, you know, an intellectual substance or an angel or something like that. That's not necessarily an uncaused, absolute cause of all that is. Thomas holds that those proofs have to be augmented with the proof from the metaphysics. It's only when you get the proof from the metaphysics that there is some final cause without which there would be no motion, not even that motion that the first mover of the outermost sphere engages in, that you can get to God. So I think that, um, I think... I mean, I think personally, Aquinas doesn't think the Aristotelian proofs do succeed unless you can read them really charitably and sort of fill in the blanks, which is, which is generally Thomas's, you know, mode of procedure when he's reading a historical thinker. Um, so I hope that at least initially addresses your question, uh, Father Thomas. Okay, this is the final Gavin, question. Yeah, yes. take the final question from Roger. That's from great. Roger. Okay, yeah. right. Um, Roger, hello. Don't you think that there are at least many differences between there are at least as many differences between Thomists as between analytical philosophers. Um, yeah, I do, uh, pretty much. Um, it, it's very difficult for one Thomist to, um, you know, find agreement with another Thomist. So um, I'm thinking here of the, uh, the River Forest School, uh, of Ashley's reading, and uh, who are the, uh, isn't it Ashley and DeConnick, uh, and Weishaupel of the River Forest School. And um, I'm thinking of them, and then the more metaphysical approach such as I would adopt, you know, Owens, Gilson, Whipple, people like that. Yeah, there, there is definite, there are those definite differences. I think, though, that when it comes to those differences between Thomists, the one thing that Thomists have, which um, I don't think is present in analytic philosophy as it's practiced now, is that we have the works of Aquinas written down, and we can turn to them. And when defending our position, we can we can go to the works of Aquinas and we can make our case with the works of Aquinas as somewhat normative. I don't think that, norm, that, that same normative feature is present in analytical philosophy as it is now. Maybe in the first sort of 50 years or so when it had an actual, it was conceived as an actual philosophical project and it was doing something, you know, as, as, um, as Domit points out, you know, it's analytical philosophy is philosophy of language, you know, it begins with Frege and then anybody not doing philosophy of language, they're, they're just in the tradition but they're not doing analytic philosophy. You know, maybe, maybe that in the first 50 years was a normative condition for analytic philosophy, but I don't think that's there now. Whereas Thomas, at least, we do have the text of Thomas that we can always turn to as a, as a norm for our engagement with each other. So maybe we'll talk about that more, Roger, but um, thank you everyone for the questions. That was awesome.